It's Double Shelix. I'm Kayla. And I'm Sally. And today we have a special episode where we are going to talk to Leanne Dirty, a senior lecturer in bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Dirty is like not only a senior lecturer, she's also an award-winning one. She won the Biomedical Engineering Teaching Award from the American Society of Engineering Education. And in 2015, she won the Hatfield Award for Excellence in Teaching from the University of Pennsylvania Engineering. So we're super excited to interview her. This is also going to be kicking off our podcast collaboration with the University of Pennsylvania Department of Bioengineering. So they're going to be like hooking us up with experts from their department. There's a lot of really awesome people there doing really awesome things. And then they're gonna like pay to edit the episodes and it's gonna be available on their platform as well as our platform. Listeners from Double Shelix, like definitely check out the University of Pennsylvania. One resource I would recommend is they have a blog and on their blog, they have like this week in bioengineering. So if you wanna like keep up with the field without actually like doing that much work, you can follow their blog and every Friday, just read about like the goings on in bioengineering around the country. That's really cool. And then if you're from University of Pennsylvania Department of Bioengineering and wanna learn more about our podcast, We're PhD students at Berkeley and UCSF, and we have this podcast, which is about women in science, the graduate school grind, inclusion, and passionate people. And I think Leanne Doherty is definitely encompassing many of those topics, and we're really excited to share a conversation with her, with you, right now. Yes, it's going to be great. Uh, We're so excited, you guys. She's amazing. Yeah, so let's get started. Okay, cool. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Double Shelix. I'm Sally. And I'm Kayla. And we have a special guest... I'm Leanne Doherty. We're super excited to welcome Leanne to the podcast. Leanne, so who are you and what do you do? So I am a senior lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania. And so what that means here at Penn is that within the Department of Bioengineering, I focus on teaching and I actually teach both undergraduate and graduate courses. And so it's a little different because I don't have any research requirements and really get to just focus on the students. That's awesome. Just for some background, what kind of classes are you teaching right now? Mm-hmm. So my background is actually in mechanical engineering. So I really teach most of the bioengineering, mechanical engineering flavored courses uh, within the BE department. And so I teach two required sophomore level courses. I teach introduction to biomechanics as well as introduction to biomaterials. And then I teach two graduate classes, an upper level biomechanics class, as well as biomechatronics, which is just a fun class in general. Wow. Biomechatronics. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the reasons that we're super excited to have you on the podcast is because at your university, you've really pioneered some really cool teaching methods. And we see that you guys, that you and your team have also done a lot of work to take those teaching methods and sort of do like academic research based on teaching. And we think that's really cool. So can you tell us about your sale classroom model and how you've integrated in your department and what it is and like all that magic? Yeah, absolutely. So first off, what is SAIL? So SAIL is actually a pen coin term. It stands for structured active in-class learning. And the reason we use that term is because a lot of people think of active learning as the flipped classroom, this idea that you do all of the reading or video lectures outside of class, and then you do problem solving inside of class or discussions inside of class. Sale is 
a combination of that with lecture. So some people here at Penn will do 50% active learning, 50% standard lecture, or they'll do a complete flipped classroom, or they'll just do active learning in recitation. And so we really wanted to make sure we were using a term that encompassed all of those different options, not just the flipped classroom. So a few years ago, I had been teaching my sophomore level biomechanics class for a few years, and I was teaching it in a very standard lecture format. And honestly, I was just finding that there were certain things the students were not getting. And for this particular class, because it's so mathematically based, they were really struggling with connecting the physical to the mathematical. And as we know, engineering is about the physical as much as it is about the mathematical. And so I started looking for ways and opportunities to bring more of that physical reality into the classroom. And so I decided to develop two different types of activities. The first I call group problem solving, and that's just what it sounds like. Uh, the students during class time work on problems in groups. They're biologically motivated problems. They're big word problems. There's lots of information in them, things that you might actually encounter in the real world. And they're asked as a group to distill them down into simplified, solvable engineering problems. And then the second type of activity I have are what I call hands-on activities. And what I actually did is I got rid of all mathematical derivations during class time. So those are all only online in video lectures. And during class, instead, what I have them do is for a topic they've never heard of before, for instance, beam bending or torsional loading, I actually give them objects and I lead them through the process of bending, of twisting it, and hopefully allowing them to see that they can actually observe the physical phenomenon, and they can almost guess at the type of relationships that will show up in the mathematical formulas. And um, so like I said, those are kind of the two main categories that I've been pursuing, and it takes up about 50% of my class time, and then the remaining 50% I really use for lecture and um, instant feedback, like clicker type questions and things like that. That's really awesome. So how did you know that the students are learning more or responding more? What, what, how do you measure this and what do you see? Yeah, so I think going in, my primary goal was do no harm at the very <laughs> least. I wanted, I wanted to make sure that they were learning at least as well as the traditional lecture format. And obviously, if I saw improved learning, that would be great. But but do no harm was my first, first step. And so I worked really closely with our Center for Teaching and Learning here at Penn, who has been phenomenal, because I'm a classically trained bioengineer and mechanical engineer, and educational research has its own flavor to it. And so I worked with them and we developed two, two assessment tools. The first was just a very basic survey, things about their competence level, about how they feel they're able to contribute to a group, how they felt that the hands-on activities improved or didn't improve their understanding, things like that, uh, that we would assess multiple times throughout the semester. The second type of assessment we use with a concept inventory. So because these activities are really meant to 
step outside of the math and, and more into the reality and the physical constraints of a problem, we wanted to give an assessment that focused on that, which unfortunately our classic tests don't do, right? Exams yeah. in the class. And so the concept inventory there, it's a very common inventory published online, uh, the statics concept inventory, as well as the strength of materials concept inventory. And it's very pictorial, very, it's all multiple choice. You know, you have two scenarios. Did something go up or did it go down? Hmm. Do you think one's bigger than the other? Uh, look at this graph, which graph best matches the scenario. And so I used that in a pre-post fashion. So I gave it the final year that I taught this course purely in a lecture format. And thankfully, I had the foresight to actually think to administer it that year. And then also administered it the first two years that I taught this as a sale class. And then we administered it at the beginning of the semester as well as the end of the semester. So we could tell whether or not a student improved over the course of the semester. Cool. That was the big picture layout. That's awesome. And the students improved over the course of the semester and was sale better than the traditional right. methods? So, yes, the big, the big catch. So what we did <laughs> is we compared the sale students to the lecture-only students. And what we found is that there was actually a significant increase in conceptual understanding. Yay. In the yes, yay. <laughs> yeah. so, very happy to see that. Uh, plus improved confidence levels in their ability to approach a real-world problem. Now, a little asterisk is that although we were seeing improved conceptual understanding, that did not necessarily translate to grade. Now, when you look at grade, grade is a really hard tool to use as an assessment. Mm -hmm. I don't give the same exams every year. I can't, I can't do that. So the difficulty of my exam factors in there. And also the fact that our exams just really aren't designed to fully test conceptual understanding. Now I have since, since the study, try to incorporate more and more of that into my exam. But when you look at the grades between the lecture only and the active learning classes, they're more or less the same. But I think that's an assessment tool problem, not necessarily a, they're not understanding it better. Does that make sense? Sure, so you're, you're improving in this conceptual understanding, but you're not really testing that with grades, so Thank you wouldn't really necessarily expect that to change much. So one thing, so it seems like the sale is something that you've pioneered for your own teaching, but then also like enabled other faculty to like incorporate this at will, sort of. Yeah. But how do you deal with strategies? Because I feel like as a student, I've definitely been in classes where it seems like the professor maybe like hasn't upgraded their lecture notes since 2004, except to add a few <laughs> slides on their own research. And, you know, faculty, like, yes, their job is teaching, but many faculty disagree with that statement and think that their job is research. So, like, how yeah. do you have any strategies for dealing with pushback from faculty who are reluctant to implement sale or sale-like strategies, like research-backed teaching methods into their own teaching? Because it obviously right. takes a lot of time and effort, which they might yeah. not have or want to exert. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, too, because there are good and bad lecturers, there are people out there that are fantastic lecturers. They're really engaging. The students don't have a problem understanding them. Those aren't classes that I necessarily 
think should be switching to active learning techniques. I think every instructor is different. So in the same way, there are good and bad sale instructors. So you can, if you're not willing to put the time and effort into developing the class and developing the activities, it can be done poorly. Now, when a faculty, so pretty much what has happened is since implementing this class in bioengineering, the word, word has gotten out within the school that this is happening. And so I've had faculty members come to me and say, I'm interested in this, but what does it really mean? And how do I actually do it? Hmm. And the time is definitely the biggest thing holding other faculty back. It's essentially going back to redeveloping the class. Right. And I think the big thing that I emphasize with those faculty members is that you don't have to go in 100%. And it comes back to this idea of everyone thinks of the flipped classroom. They feel like they have to go 100%. All my material is going to be online and the students are going to do everything, you know, at home. And I have to do all this extra work to come up with new class activities. You can do it in small chunks. So you can start in recitation. Just have recitation be an active environment. You can do just three or four throughout the course of the semester and then see how that goes and see how that develops. And as time goes on, you can add it in. It's not like teaching the first time you taught the class when you had to come up with all this brand new material at the very beginning. You can do it in small amounts. Cool. Yeah, that's such a great point, too, that I think a lot of people miss is it's there's so many places to start without having to overhaul everything that you've already done and developed. Yeah. Another thing that would be great if you could speak about is both Kayla and I are being GSIs, which is the Berkeley word for graduate student instructor. It's like a TA this mm -hmm. semester. And I know, Kayla, you're doing like the senior design capstone class. So Leanne, how do you utilize graduate student instructors? And Kayla, like you also do design classes. And so like, what's your wisdom for design specific classes, which I feel are like a huge burden on students' time because usually like your senior capstone design classes, yeah. they're in the lab yeah. a lot. They are. <laughs> yeah. And actually, that's the other thing that I remind faculty is to utilize graduate students that are interested in teaching. So when I developed this class, I worked very closely with a graduate student that had TA'd for me numerous times. And she, we would sit down and I'd have these conversations with her, like, here's my idea. This is, this is what I want to get at. This is my big picture idea. And then she would take that and a week later, she'd come back with something more concrete. And so having a good graduate TA can really make or break the conversion to an active learning class. So absolutely fantastic resource. As far as design is concerned, I actually have never taught our senior capstone course here. We actually have another lecturer that teaches it. And I've talked to him a little bit. He's actually incorporated quite a bit of active learning into his class in the capstone design class, simply because every group is so different, you know, depending on the project. I don't know if that's similar to how yours is set up. Yes, definitely. Yeah, okay. every group is so, different projects. Yeah. And so what he's doing is he's using the active learning components during in-class time to give a common thread throughout the projects. 
But the students in your courses, like, I saw there's, like, you're, like, famous at Penn, so there's, like, a bunch of articles about you, which we read, and we can post in the show notes. But, yeah, so I see, like, your students are designing, like, hands to, like, pick up an egg. So it's, like, the class is all doing the same super complicated project. Right. Versus, so like, doing like- different super complicated projects? Yeah. Yeah, it's a little different. That's actually my upper-level biomechatronics class. Okay. And I almost feel like graduate courses are a whole different ballgame. How so? Graduate students, or even upper-level undergraduates, are picking a class because they're really interested in the topic and they want to put the time and effort into them. I'm not saying that that's not true about sophomore-level students, but you're going to get a much wider spread of student interest as well as student motivation levels. Sure. And so in this biomechatronics class, which is where we build robot arms and pick up things, and we're picking up Play-Doh this year instead of eggs. We'll see how it goes. You, The motivation that the students have doesn't need to be directed by me quite as much. It's a little more self-directed. And I just find that that changes how I teach the course. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Kayla, in your senior capstone, do you feel like the students are like internally motivated? Because it's sort of a requirement, but they have to do the senior capstone or something else. It's not like a 100% requirement. Right. Like, is it their motivation or like you pushing? They're really motivated. I think they're really motivated, partly because the way that this course is designed, which is really well done, is to set them up so that their projects can become real world products and so some of them will take this on to to be a career and also they're seniors so even if they're not going to continue with this specific project a lot of them are headed to grad school or medical school or the real world so you know (laughs) like some experience that's real yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) so uh they're thinking ahead about how am I going to start solving problems not on paper? And so I think they're pretty motivated to learn this process and do a good job. And they're taking it seriously because life is, is about to happen. Real so. life is here. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so that's good. And I think you are, I totally agree. It's You get uh, students that are picking that course for a reason at the upper level levels of courses and it makes it does make a big difference um but with that do you see other differences with graduate student courses specifically i know that often graduate courses are less emphasized than when you're an undergrad right like like students might be picking it for a reason but maybe they also are less motivated or maybe the reason that they're picking it is because it will take the least amount of time away from their phd research like maybe right it's it's funny that that we started talking about this because it's probably one of the biggest misconceptions I had when I came in to teaching. I thought, oh, these grad classes are going to be so interactive and the students all really want to be there and, you know, they're small and I'll get to know everyone. And yes, yeah, sometimes that's true. But a lot of times I feel like I'm pulling teeth in those upper level classes because of exactly these things that you mentioned. If they are PhD students, they'd rather be in the lab. They're trying to just satisfy the requirements. But what we have, at least here at Penn, is PhD students, master's students that came from other schools, and then master's students that came out of our own program. Mm -hmm. 
And so mm. I'm dealing with almost three very different flavors within the same class. And that makes it hard to teach. It's, it's hard to, to decide, you know, some of those students I've had in previous classes. Some of them are only here doing master's work where they're only taking classes and not doing any research. And then the PhD students that either are just trying to fulfill some requirements or even the PhD students. So I teach also a very, my upper level continuum biomechanics class is a very intense quantitative class. Uh-huh. Some of the PhD students really need that math to develop their thesis. And so it's all over the place and it can make a really big difference about how I teach. And I, that's actually the class that I need to adjust the most every semester. And I don't mean content wise, but whether or not I have them work in groups or whether or not I just stand at the chalkboard and I talk. So it, it, yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say any advice for other instructors who are dealing with like the triple population of PhD in our, in our department, we have classes where there's like PhD students, master students who are like professional class takers and undergrads who, you know, are there to take classes, but also like apply to med school in that same semester. Right. I think the biggest piece of advice is realize that it's going to happen. That was what took me by surprise. And then I've actually found that handing out note cards in the beginning of the semester with just some really basic questions. What's your background? Why are you taking this class? You know, if you're a PhD student, what lab are you in? Just to help me get an idea of who I'm dealing with. And then, you know, if it's people that, and I, I tell them, be honest with me. If you're taking this just to satisfy a requirement, tell me that. And so I can kind of adjust the way that I present the material based on those responses. That makes a lot of sense. And I yeah. appreciate that you're assessing that ahead of time. I I also did know, so I'm GSIing for an ethics class this semester, the bioethics course at Berkeley for bioengineers. Mm-hmm. And I did the no card thing at the beginning of the semester. And I was like, humbled that so many students were so ethical in their truthfulness being like this is easiest engineering ethics course yeah (laughs) they're like why are you here yeah (laughs) but but then i have like students from nuclear engineering in my class and i feel like a lot of burden like this is a nuclear engineer and this is the only ethics class that you're gonna take so like i feel like i have to really deliver to like give you this education for the safety of humanity yeah yeah (laughs) the pressure's on yeah i know so Transitioning a little bit, you were a PhD student and now you're like on the teaching faculty track. So can you talk a little bit about like what got you here or like how you knew this was the path for you and like what your ultimate career goals might be? Yeah, absolutely. So I come from a long line of engineers and teachers. Oh, wow. So yeah, I think it's in my blood. (laughs) So the teachers have always taught at the K-12 level. And so... Once I discovered my love of engineering, which I did, you know, during later high school and then and then in college, I knew that I wanted teaching to be a component of my career. And that mainly came from tutoring as an undergrad and, you know, working in study groups and really enjoying explaining things to other people mm-hmm. and, and seeing their different perspectives. But I knew that I did not have the patience to deal with K-12. I just don't have it in me. I, I, they're my heroes. I don't know how they do it. <laughs> I, I, I have to agree. <laughs> really admiration for all of those teachers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
And so I knew that if I wanted to teach at the university level, I would need a PhD. And I also, so I went to Lafayette College, which is an undergraduate only institution. And so I didn't get a chance to really see as much of the research component as I would have liked. I did have some research experience, but not quite the same as you would in a PhD. And so I wanted to explore that a little further and get a better feel for how much I wanted research to play a role in my career path. And so that led me to pursuing a PhD. And about three or four years into my PhD, I realized I had enough of mice and rats and <laughs> thing over and over again. I can't that that's a common sentiment as a fourth year PhD student. Yeah. I see that. Yes, and that's, I see that's that. kind of the yes. big thing I tell any PhD student that comes in for advice. I say, it is completely normal to have that panic year three or four of what the heck am I doing? Mm-hmm. It's Life like does not continue. You've been there forever, yet have accomplished nothing and are not yes. leaving soon. Yes, and, and everybody goes through that. It's okay. <laughs> Good <Yeah>. to know. <laughs> it's, it's horrible. I call it the uh, midlife PhD crisis. That's pretty, that's yeah, spot on. Fair. Though I hope I'm more than halfway done. <laughs> right, right, right. Some, sometimes I adjust it to the quarter or the three quarter mm. crisis. See, oh, is it very um, quantitative? Quantitative, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> Um, so I had that realization like year three or four but I was really enjoying the things that I got involved with with the Center for Teaching and Learning so we have a lot of activities for graduate students to develop their teaching skills I was TAing actually funny enough I, I did my PhD here at Penn and I TAed for the biomechanics class which I now teach oh so, all full circle, circle. Yes. that's amazing <laughs> And so I really started focusing more on mentoring in the lab and doing those types of activities while realizing that my, my research is still an important part of, or not just my research, but my PhD in general is an important part of a teaching career because it really taught me how to self-educate. For me, that's the big takeaway in a teaching position is, you know, my department chair comes to me and says, hey, I want you to teach this course that you don't know a ton about. And I frantically run to the library. Yes, I'm one of those people that still goes physically to the library. Lean into it. I'm here for yeah. it. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, really that ability to say, okay, well, what has traditionally been taught? How do I learn myself? How do I look at what's going on currently in the research world that I can use to motivate these more basic classes? And so that was that was how I continued through the later half of my PhD with that in mind. Once I had decided that I knew research wasn't going to be a major component, or I should say basic science research wasn't going to be a major component of my career path. So I finally graduated, I finished my PhD up, and I started looking for teaching-focused positions, which anyone that is looking for that type of thing should know that it varies greatly depending on the size of the school. You know, some places those teaching positions are staff positions, some places they're faculty positions, mm -hmm. some have research requirements, some don't. There's, there's a really a very wide range of teaching-focused positions out there. And it turned out that the Penn BE program was looking for 
a mechanics-focused bioengineer to teach classes in the lecturer track. And so it kind of just worked out really nicely that I found myself in this position. That's awesome. I think that I was always a little concerned that teaching alone wouldn't be enough for me, that you do tire out a little bit after you've taught the same class a number of times. And so I decided that I wanted to pursue some of this educational research and supplement, in my mind, the career path that I was taking in this teaching role. That's awesome. Do you have any ongoing education research projects right now? So the main focus has been the active learning, and I'm still looking a little bit at trying to determine how this has a long-term effect or does it have a long-term effect on the understanding of students. So I regave that concept inventory to the students during their junior year, so a full year and a half later. And I'm trying to determine whether or not the lecture-based class versus the sale class was able to retain the information longer. That's still a work in progress. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's really interesting to track it long-term, too. I don't think, yeah. I don't see, I haven't heard of doing that as often, so. Yeah, and I guess it's lucky you started with a sophomore class, so you don't have to track them down, like, in their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. So... Mm-hmm. How can GSIs or TAs or faculty or anyone that's teaching get some idea of how to set up more active learning in their classroom? Like any resources that you would suggest if they can't go to like the one at your school, like the Center of Teaching and Learning? Right. So pretty much every university does have some equivalent to a Center for Teaching and Learning. So that's the first place that I always suggest that people start. People within the field of engineering, and most fields have one of these, but an education-based society. So within engineering, it's the American Society for Engineering Education. And it's a fantastic society. It's a group of people that they're focusing purely on engineering education, which is very different than a scientific society. And so they're great resources. Like I said, I know physics has one. I know biology has one. So looking there... And then finally, really connecting with any faculty that are interested in pursuing these types of activities, because as I mentioned before, they're going to need help. They're going to need, if they want to start implementing active learning approaches, they're going to be more than happy to have a motivated graduate student working with them. And so I think those are the kind of the three major areas that I suggest a graduate student would look. That's awesome. So besides being an awesome engineering educator, an accomplished PhD who like worked really hard and has like totally made a huge difference in your department. Like what else is going on in your life? Like you have hobbies, like you have free time. Like I hope that you do. (laughs) (laughs) So I used to have free time. Okay. um, Until I had a daughter in April. Oh, fun. Congratulations. Yeah. So she is seven months old. And so right now my major challenge is figuring out how to balance work and, you know, home life, having a baby at home. What's the secret? Um, I don't know. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I will let you know if I figure it out. Okay. How's it going so far? So, so far, so good. Definitely some adjustment time and and figuring out daycare and, and getting home and still having time with her. But I have to admit that 
This type of position, so for, for any woman or man that's considering having a family and wanting to balance that work and, and home life, it is a good fit for that. So for instance, you know, my daughter was sick. I didn't have any classes to teach. I can work from home that day and, you know, answer student emails or plan my lecture. I can do a lot of that from home. At the same time, there is a downside in the sense that there's no such thing as a substitute professor. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, So if I need to stay home and I have class, that means that I need to cancel the class and then I need to do something about the fact that I canceled my class. Because you can't just infinitely cancel classes. That would be terrible. exactly. Exactly. So there's really no such thing as vacation days or sick days for a faculty member at at the university level. Are you your daughter's only caregiver or do you have like a partner? Yep. So my husband, um, so that's my other big piece of advice is obviously you want a partner that is hopefully engaged and wants to be there and wants to be able to fill in those times when you have to go teach class. And so thankfully I do have that. And that's, that's a balance that we're still juggling and still figuring out as well. You know, who, who takes over, who does what, and what exactly does that look like? That's awesome. Yeah, that can make a big difference. I feel like everyone always asks women in science, like, women, how do you do it all with a child? Yeah. But, like, no one ever asks dudes with kids, like, how they do yeah. it all. Because it's assumed that they have a female partner and that she is doing it all. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, it- It's really interesting. So my husband works for a very traditional pharmaceutical company. And so there's definitely a mentality that, you know, what do you mean you're taking off for the birth of your child? Uh, Well, well, plus there's the whole like motherhood penalty, fatherhood bonus where like when a woman has a baby, it's like you had a baby. This was your dumb choice. But when a man has a baby, it's like, oh, you're a dad. Like you're helping with your own baby. It's like, no, I'm just its parent. Like I'm not helping. It's my job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a full-time role for him as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and so I think um, being at an academic, so I'm at an academic institution, definitely the mentality is a little different than at a traditional pharmaceutical company, you know, old-school pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's always interesting just our experiences at the workplace are very different as well. Yeah, I believe it. Hmm. Yeah. And it's changing. Don't get me wrong. It's changing at the larger companies as well. But it's slow. It's slow to change. I would say, like, living in the Bay Area, I feel like industry versus academic, except if you're at a tiny startup which has, like, no employees and no HR and no recompense, I feel like the larger companies in the Bay Area are kind of better about that than academia. Yeah. You know, like, thinking about places like Genentech have, like, a really good reputation about, like, family life balance. But, like, the ones on, you know, maybe it's, like, the whole East Coast, West Coast stereotype. Right. I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. I think the East Coast is not quite there yet or is still working on it. Yeah. But startups also are not good about this. Startups yeah, are I, just working. Yes. Yeah, they just do work. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I can only imagine. You know, it's hard because after doing my PhD was six years and then being in this position for what, five years? This is my seventh year in this position. Okay. You know, it was definitely something that we talked about and we said, honestly, we concluded there's no good time. It's you're always never, the wrong time. 
yeah, it's always the wrong time. So at some point you have to say, this is important to me. This is what I want to do. Everything else is just going to have to adjust. Mm. And I think that we've been going in with that mentality and sometimes there's positive consequences and sometimes there are negative ones and we're just dealing with them as they come up. But really trying to say, this is just as important to us as our careers, and but both are important. And so we're going to figure out how to make room for this new part of our life. I love it. I'm here for it. Yeah, it's a great mentality. One thing that we like to talk about on the podcast is we call them better talk next time moments, which is where someone says something to you in like a professional or quasi-professional context and you're just it makes you feel uncomfortable like it probably doesn't necessarily go all the way to the level of like harassment but it's just something that like shouldn't have been said and makes you feel really like blah and you don't you like wish that you had the perfect response but at the time you just sort of are like blah you know do do you have any experiences like whether it's related to like your pregnancy and giving birth or like your life as a woman in science that you want to, sh- if you don't like, that's okay. We'll cut this part out. But anything that you yeah. want to share that you've had experiences that you hope that future women don't have to endure. So I, I look very young. I, I, I've always looked young. And so when I first started teaching, I always felt the need to dress up and to be very formal in the classroom because honestly, I look like a student. And I found this to be especially difficult with some of the, I'm not sure what the word is that I want to use, but I had some male students that there were times when, for instance, they didn't, weren't happy with their grade. And, and I, I really want to emphasize that this was a very, very, very small percentage of my male students, but they felt like they could almost bully me into a better grade. No. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, what and would they, they say to you? So it was actually almost more of a physical imposition thing. <gasps> so they would get really close to me. You know, they're usually taller than me. Very intimidating in that sense. And really push back when I would say something like, okay, you lost points because of X. They would say, well, I don't think that that's a valid point. And I'm kind of like, all right, I'm the expert here and you're the student. I'm telling you it's a valid point. Yeah. Uh, First of all, I have to say that I can totally relate on looking young. I'm small and I look very young. So, and while I haven't had the student interaction involved, uh, a dynamic. We're like physical bullying. Yeah. Oh, that sucks that that happened to you. I'm really sorry. I can also definitely relate on attempting to stay professional like with parents to try to compensate for this because the struggle is real <laughs> well and yeah. I think as someone like I'm 25 like I look 25 ish I think I hope yeah. I don't look like I'm 45 no like <laughs> as someone who doesn't experience this problem it's definitely a privilege because Kayla like you're wearing like a really nice like blazer thing and like quality yes. jeans yes. at work today and I'm wearing like this is like a free like sweatshirt thing and like the same yeah. pants I've worn every day for the last three weeks. I never <laughs> wear makeup to work and I don't worry about it. And my students still right. are like, oh, you're, they still think I'm, you know, their, their authority figure. So it's definitely, if you look as old as you are, it's a new form of, pri- it's like privilege and you yeah. need to like be aware. <laughs> yes. Oh, 
And if to all of our listeners, just don't bully. Oh, I know exactly what you mean, though, where they, like, come up and they, like, stand too close. And then you come back and they, like, move closer to you. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think just two things that anyone that does have this problem, two things that I hope are maybe helpful is, one, early in my career when I was nervous and, and I didn't really know how to deal with those things, I found it really useful to make sure there was always something physically between us. So whether that be my desk in my office or, you know, if we were in a lecture hall, I would put the podium between us. That really helped just create that physical barrier that I needed. And then the second thing I wanted to mention is if anyone out there has ever found themselves in that situation, I personally found that it got better. And by that, I mean my confidence level in my teaching and the way that I interact with students, I don't have that problem anymore. Now, possibly it's because we don't have students like that anymore, which I would love to think is actually what happened. But just my ability to respond to students pushing back has grown and I become more comfortable with those types of situations. It's not something that I find myself dealing with anymore. That's awesome. That gives me hope. (laughs) Yeah, but at the same time, it's like, how shitty is it that you have to, it shouldn't be on you to be like extra confident. You should just be able to like do a great job like you have been doing and be treated with the respect that you deserve as an expert authority figure and someone that right. these kids parents are paying you to teach their kids right so right or i mean financially you know whatever that's not the case for everyone but yeah right like right that's very true it's unfortunate that this problem exists but yeah. at the same time you can only control your own actions i guess exactly oh. well thank you for sharing that with us i think it's something, yeah, Kayla, we've definitely talked about this before, like, you dealing with these sort of things. Oh, yeah. I can and, tell like, a lot in of the, stories. I feel like that's another thing that, like, happens in your professional life and your personal life, too. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not just students who are like, are you 12? <laughs> right. Yeah. right. <laughs> it's definitely, if, if I'm someplace new, you can count on at least every other day someone will comment or ask me about my age. And it's... Oh, yeah. And then, uh, okay, I just, I have to tangent for a second. The number one responses after I correct them or try to change the subject is, oh, well, you'll appreciate it when you're older. And I'm like, right. Right. can you not? <laughs> can you not tell right. me that? Right. I'm highly educated. I know what I'm talking about. You yeah. know, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, let's move on. Uh. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, we're reaching the end of our time together, Leanne, but I wanted to just give you an opportunity, first of all, like if there's anything that you want to mention or discuss that hasn't been, that hasn't come up, or if there's any way that our listeners can find out more about your work and like your awesomeness, anything? I think we covered all the topics that I wanted to talk about. As far as active learning is concerned, uh, like I said, our Center for Teaching and Learning has resources on there that anybody can access. You know, you don't have to be at Penn to access those. Awesome. And yeah, I think I think that's about it. Great. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. We're really excited to have you and to, I don't know if we mentioned, but this episode is sort of kicking off the new collaboration that Double Helix Podcast has with the UPenn Department of Bioengineering. And they're like generously paying to edit this podcast, which is gonna be awesome. And we're just grateful for the collaboration. And like, it means that we get to talk with awesome researchers like you who have like a much different perspective than what we are normally. I mean, it's not that different because you're awesome. And like, 
you know, but <laughs> with like a new perspective. And we had a lot of fun talking with you today. You're super awesome. Before the episode, I reached out to all three of my friends that I know that go to UPenn Bioengineering to ask if they were your student. And they all were like, oh, I wasn't. And it sucks because I heard she's amazing. <laughs> so there's, you know, <laughs> three people who haven't had your class know your reputation and said it was okay. great. That's three out of three. So, so even better. <laughs> fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. I had fun. Yeah, yeah, us too. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Bye. I feel like so much of what academics, like the academic currency is papers. Yes. At least from our perspective as PhD students, like must have papers. Yes. But it's really cool that she can like take something else that she's passionate about, which is teaching and that's amazing and like make papers out of it. Yeah. Because like obviously other people should be able to learn from what she's doing. Well, that's exactly the thing is that she's, she's really pioneering this new course. And so if she just takes all that work and locks it into a desk, then it's, like it, it's great for the students that she had and for her, but she, if she's sharing this, then so many other people can use it too. Yeah. And I feel like from graduate students, like often GSIs will do something really cool and new with the class, but then if the professor, or like the TA, you know, whatever, if this graduate student instructor or assistant like does something really cool and new with the class and that's like takes a lot of effort but has a lot of payout yeah. if there's no like continuum of professor to like do it again the following years then that will just die but not yeah. if you do research about it and publish about it and go to conferences we'll link to some of her um, papers in the show notes thanks for listening don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're currently listening to it the fun doesn't stop when this podcast does, so keep up with us on Twitter at DoubleSheLixPod or shoot us an email, DoubleSheLixPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, um, she's amazing. Yeah, that was fantastic. That was really she, good. She, like, first of all, can I be her? Yeah.